Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, I'm really happy to have as our guest, my friend and colleague for many years now, Emily Rafferty, who among many things is the, the uh, President Emerita for the Metropolitan Museum in New York. She is a senior advisor at Russell Reynolds, the international executive search firm. And she's even a special advisor to UNESCO, the cultural organization of the UN. So welcome to the caring economy, Emily Rafferty. Thank you, Toby. I look forward to talking with you. So Emily, we always like to ask our guests on the caring economy about their own career journey, sort of starting with, maybe where you're born, where you went to school, but then more significantly, how your career took off and maybe even more um, practically speaking, where you went left while others were going right or where you had to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and make something new out of something that wasn't so great. So tell us a little bit about Emily Rafferty's career journey, please. Sure, I grew up in New York City, very sort of tame, normal life of, um, a young girl with uh, six siblings. We all went to school here in New York where I live now. And I'd say my roots of activity have always been in some form of volunteerism. So I was headed to the nonprofit sector uh, very early in life um, through places like Head Start, uh, joining organizations that were um, food banks and, and uh, things like that. So life, Life went on through uh, high school and college. Uh, in college, I wound up initially at a junior college and I was a bit lost about what to focus on. And I noted that it had a full curriculum uh, offered by a very, very um, able and accomplished woman on world religions. And so I took all of those courses and there's no doubt that they informed uh, the directions that I took. I learned first and foremost that um, other than the secularism of the United States or still pretty secularism of the United States, that beyond that and certainly beyond the Western world of Europe, everybody's life is very intertwined with their, their religious beliefs. And so to understand a culture, you had to go to those roots, which I did and I'm quite sure was the guiding force to my ending up uh, career at the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, for 40 years. Prior to the Met, I worked in a number of nonprofit institutions. My first job was working for David Rockefeller Jr., who was at the time at the Boston Symphony. And I worked on his non-symphony activities, which included a lot of um, uh, nonprofit work and the organizations that he was involved in running youth programs up in Massachusetts at Tanglewood, the summer home of the Boston Symphony. And all of this was due to one giant um, turn one way and then flip to another. I was off to, um, to, to Vista, the equivalent of the Peace Corps. And I met uh, David through the woman who was working for him at a concert one night in Boston, literally two weeks before I was gonna leave for Vista. And um, he was uh, persuasive in the work that he was doing, running the governor's task force for arts and education in the state of Massachusetts, always having been interested in arts and education and involved in it from the start and also as a volunteer at Head Start for many years. I decided to do it, to give the summer a try and really the rest became history. I worked with David on a number of nonprofit projects and ultimately 
moved back to New York um, and wound up at the Met uh, as, a, as a young woman, really, in the development area. Found a career in development, which people cringe away from. It's asking for money, what an idiot mm -hmm. to do. In fact, it's a very easy thing to do if you have a passion about the institution and you have a knowledge about it and believe in its mission. I yes. think it's one of the of of the of the easiest and most rewarding things that one can do is to see things come to life through the support of people who are beginning to get joy from seeing it happen. Mm -hmm. Those are these kind of in a capsule, the very yeah. early days, and um, uh, I can go on from there unless you want sure. to go into a specific question. Sure. Uh, so Emily, you were um, you ended up at your undergraduate at. Boston University. So physically, you were in Boston. Is that coincidentally also how you ran into David at that pivotal well, moment? He was uh, he was actually working at the Boston Symphony at the time, and mm -hmm. uh, he was in a singing group, uh, Nakapolo singing group called the um, um, Cantata Singers. That was it. Yes. And, um, anyway, so I met him through a friend who worked at the Boston Symphony, and that's how I. I got there, but yes, I was living in Boston. And um, uh, anyway, I stayed another four years or so, working mm -hmm. most of the time with David and then with his friend, uh, Drew Hyde over at the Institute of Contemporary Art running their experimental um, educational program in city high schools. So again, more, that was, uh, that was a paid job. That was not a volunteer job, but sure. um, certainly a lot of, of uh, a lot of opportunity to learn and just sweep up knowledge at a time when, when one is active that way and one's brain is kind of all over the place and searching for uh, um, searching for new things and antenna mm -hmm. on all fronts. So I was very fortunate to do that. And yeah, I, um, I write in The Caring Economy about purpose-driven careers and it sounds like yours has been purpose-driven. That, that sense of service for which you've um, you've been recognized in your whole career. I know you've got so many accolades from honorary doctorates to uh, lists and cranes, 100 most influential women. Um, the service piece though, it sounds like from what you've shared, it started early, like when you were a child growing up here in it, Manhattan. It really did. Yeah, it really did. And I, um, you know, some people want to be a leader. Some people don't want to be a leader. Some people, take courses to learn to be a leader. And there are many, many things in this world that I am not. But one of the things I am is a natural leader. It just comes to me naturally. I don't, I don't do anything to, um, to ask it to be there. It simply is the way I respond to situations would be to, to initiate conversations or mm -hmm. in a bind where I'm in a physical place that people can't get out of or whatever, that I will take the leadership and that's not something I'm necessarily proud of, but it is something that one has a responsibility for when you understand that you do have that gift yes. um, to use it. You have a choice if you have that gift. You can choose it for positive action or you can choose it for negative action or you can choose it for no action. I yes. think um, the, the positive is the only responsible way to go. So I have um, uh, been involved in the Met, as I say, through through 40 years of fundraising, running fundraising, external affairs, and then running the Met for 10 years. But all the way along, um, I was uh, mindful 
of the opportunities that I should take for leadership, joining other boards, for instance, chairing other boards, even when my children were in school and chairing their boards and then moving on from their schools to, to um, other places, some of which that you mentioned, um, the New York Federal Reserve Bank, where I chaired the regional um, New York branch of, for, for um, four out of the six years that I was on that board, mm -hmm. a, real, a real gift to be able to serve that way. And um, I think in other, in other aspects of one's life, um, you need to demonstrate a call to action. It's one thing to say that you believe in, in social responsibility. It's mm -hmm. one thing to have people notice that, that you do it and you don't do it because you wanna be recognized. But again, it just something that becomes natural to me and something that I enjoy. So. Mm -hmm. The Met had 1,300, 1,400 volunteers, enormously talented group. 500 of them were docents. Without them, we couldn't have opened the doors in the morning uh, for the museum. We would not have as nearly a rich educational program without them. And so supporting them um, and making sure they had what they need and through the opportunities that I had in leadership is an example of how I think that you can you can keep an organization going without having it mm -hmm. every day, but just to, um, to, to be involved in it and yes. to be visibly active, uh, which I think you point out you know, in your book is getting up out of your seat and mm -hmm. talk, walking around and seeing where things are and where things could be better or without being bothersome. You know, the, yes. the thing is to be bothersome. And one can observe without taking action right away. I think that mm -hmm. actually that's the better way to go. I learned at one point along the way that listening was really important mm -hmm. and that listening was um, actually essential. You could go down the wrong track very easily. Mm -hmm. I think you know, you're a know-it-all and you're not. You know, you've got to listen mm -hmm. and see yep. what, the, what the path um, and the journey is. And sometimes it isn't. Um, what you expect it to be. Right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, today on The Caring Economy, we have Emily Rafferty, who is a president emerita at the Metropolitan Museum in New York, which she ran for 10 years. Uh, after a 40-year career there, she's a special advisor at the U at UN's uh, cultural organization, UNESCO, and a senior advisor at Russell Reynolds, the international search firm. Um, stick with us after this break. Uh, Emily Rafferty, I Welcome back to The Caring Economy. I wanted to ask you about that whole sense of leadership and in particular, uh, as we enter uh, Women's History Month, uh, what advice do you give to young girls and women who are contemplating a career such as yours right now? Um, I take on that leadership can be somewhat nurtured and somewhat of nature, but how does, how does a young aspiring professional we'll say female in this case, how does she chart out her, her, her career? Or what advice do you give to her to, um, to test some things or to, to take some steps forward? I do do a lot of mentoring for mostly young women now that are coming out of college. And uh, I talk to them about their interests and try to dig deep so that creating the the, the strongest and the most diverse platform for them as they approach what they're doing and the kind of people they are. For some people, uh, it very naturally appears to me that they should follow their, 
their instincts and try to secure a fellowship for one or two years somewhere if they can afford to do it or if they can get it funded. And then um, usually they are the individuals that will wanna go more directly into graduate school because they have a clear mission of what they wanna do um, in the arts in particular. For instance, that would be true if they wanted to, to go into the um, curatorial ranks uh, that, that involves that education, you know, a continuing education. If it's more of a situation where a person knows that they want to be in the nonprofit sector, uh, let's say, or has particular instincts in uh, animal rights issues or whatever it is, I try to um, help them build a resume and a CV right away because it's going to be the first encounter they're usually going mm -hmm. to have unless it's unless they get lucky in meeting people. And mm -hmm. in that CV, I really try to make them as broad-based uh, a person as they can possibly be mm -hmm. uh, with attention to the particulars of what they have done and mm -hmm. try to embrace all that they, they have done because sometimes they miss it. I'm working with a really brilliant young woman now. And um, I went through her resume and I said, you know, you've had a lot of international travel. You haven't come from, you know, parents that have taken you places. You've got to get that in here because global experience right now is everything. And yes. so if you speak these languages, let's get it in here. And that's an example of an oversight that she just didn't think about. Yeah. So it, uh, it, it's different in every, in every way, but mm -hmm. I think setting expectations is probably the most important thing that I would try to do with a young person looking. There is in the world of the technologies that we, we can embrace and that we have access to, there is a sense of speed. There's a sense of, of um, alacrity that one can go into an institution and very quickly um, rise the ranks. And sometimes time has to be- Absolutely. Encounter. Yes, and, you can't age a fine wine and, overnight. And if you become pushy, and if you become uh, too uh, enamored of yourself and where you should be within the institution, um, you probably won't get there very far. Yep. People are looking for individuals who come in, they have a job, but they see what also what needs to be done. And they see also what people around them might might need. I mean, using that sixth sense and engaging with people. I understand through the pandemic, it's been almost impossible to do, but when things break open and even in Zoom, you know, you begin to see it happen. Your job is not only about yourself and what you're doing. It's about the people who are around you as well. And many of them need conversation. They're very insecure, perhaps, or maybe you're very insecure, perhaps. And we all go through those moments. So look for places where you think you might be able to have a cup of coffee or, uh, or, or engage in, in something that's going on. Follow the teamwork, you know, where there's an, uh, an, um, a chance to be a member of a team and to be expose your leadership qualities in that, not in an abrasive way, but in a, in a contemplative, in a, in, a, in a articulate way of what you can bring to the situation. Yes. Don't take everything, take what you can do well and do yeah. it well. I mean, and, and those, those are the kinds of things I think that will move you forward. People notice that. 
Yes. I look at a resume, having talked about it a minute ago, somebody's been out of college for five years, I'll look at a resume. And by that time, I don't really care where they went to school. And I certainly don't care what their grades were. I really care how their attitude has developed and mm -hmm. what they want to do in the direction they want to take. And if they've identified any mission for themselves. Um, now for women, there's huge opportunities out there right now. I've just worked um, with on a congressional women's committee for eight years of eight women. There were eight of us, four from each um, party, and on the feasibility of a an American uh, history museum to be mm -hmm. women's history mm -hmm. museum to be part of the Smithsonian. And I thought I would never live to see the day. We submitted our study to Congress two and a half years ago. It was the whole thing was just voted in by Congress and the Senate this December. So, and to be a part of the Smithsonian. So that's gonna be a huge thing for women all over this country who are, who are interested in women's history. Absolutely. And there's a huge field of women's history out there. It hasn't been told. And so there's opportunities in the universities, in the think tanks, in the, in the organizations around women that have grown up. Yeah. Um, and, and so for people who are interested in women's activities, um, what they've done at the New York uh, Historical Society here in New York, whole women's floor dedicated to women's history, it is finally being looked at and recognized as yes. a group that, that has not been sufficiently studied. Yep. That's just one example of many, many that women can do. If they yes. don't want to do something women-oriented, then fine. They can do whatever they choose to do. You know, I, I see many women going into the field of uh, veterinary studies right now, more than, more than ever, <laughs> for whatever reason. And I think it's love of animals and also love of medicine. I mean, so there are these combinations of things that one can find that allow you yep. to dedicate yourself mission-wide. Yep. So uh, thank you for that, Emily. Um, ladies and gentlemen, again, today we have Emily Rafferty on The Caring Economy. Emily, I want to ask you a little bit about um, the recovery from COVID-19. You've been for many years uh, a trustee, a board member, and chair of the uh, NYC and Co., which is New York City's Visitors and Convention Bureau equivalent, basically. How are, how are, how are you all helping New York come through the COVID pandemic? What are some of the signs of uh, hope that we should get, hopefully? Well, it, it used to be the Visitors Bureau and, and so forth. It was under the, the, the uh, Bloomberg administration. It was framed into um, NYC and company, which now oversees all of the tourism and marketing activities for the city of New York. So it embraces this whole package of tourism, which is all of the industries that live in New York and attract the, the tourists. And it also embraces um, the, the go-to places that, that um, move beyond the Statue of Liberty and the museums to all of the industries such as, as the restaurants and those that benefit from tourism. So you have to look at the whole picture. And what are we looking at? The first thing that happened was that Fred Dixon, who is the CEO of NYC and Company, put together a citywide coalition that included uh, members from all of these industries. It meets regularly. Um, it has task force that, that has planned comebacks. Um, initially, it was all about visiting the boroughs in New York City because we were very aware we would not be getting visitors from, from other, other states and other countries. That is beginning to loosen up. Museums are open. 
um, restaurants finally. It's been a very, very tough walk, a tough, tough mm -hmm. walk. But I do see um, with the vaccines, with the availability of the vaccines, as frustrating as it has been to get a shot in the arm, um, it, it is happening. And, and um, when the social distancing can finally abate to some extent, Mm -hmm. uh, we'll see more activities in our social and our in our cultural and our nonprofit institutions by the fall. I think we'll see the opening of uh, Broadway and later as the season unfolds, we'll see the um, those places like uh, concert halls and auditorium and, and, mm -hmm. and those places that can't accommodate many people. But I think this summer we will see the fruits of our efforts in Agreed. blowout of community programs. Uh, Henry uh, Timms at Lincoln Center is opening up all of the plazas for all kinds of Lincoln Center activities, plus all other activities. I think it will be he, he, the idea of the agora, the Greek, the Greek mm -hmm. island, and I think you're all of these kinds of city activities in this one place and that will be the hub from which we will see this happen in the five boroughs so it is a process outdoor dining will happen yep. and what needs to happen and it's going to take time is the comfort factor that is what is in my opinion really holding up the reopening people comfortable coming into the broader city um, and what we're going to see i think is the hybrid of offices that people will come and they'll go, they'll work at home, they'll work in their offices, they'll work around the city. I mean, it will take a while and it may never come back to full-time in the office. It certainly will come to different office structures, different mm -hmm. arrangements, different travel. Very important to come back of New York. And we're also fortunately seeing the culmination of the renovations of, of uh, JFK and of LaGuardia and Newark coming along down the line. Mm -hmm. So our airports are gonna be world-class before mm -hmm. too long and people are already beginning to take comfort in the vaccine by flying. Mm -hmm. We're likely not to see the full comeback of international tourism until out there in 2024. Yeah. Between now and then, we'll see the gradual comeback of the domestic of some international. Mm -hmm. So it's happening, I, I, see, the, I see the rollout I'm an optimist. I'm a believer yes. in New York. I work with lots of these boards who are um, at Carnegie Hall, the 9-11 Memorial, who are um, Metropolitan Museum of Art. You know, you name them all out there. They are working to their best, best um, yes. uh, you know, way and with less money than they had, less money that they're going to have for a long time. And yet they are, they are keeping the city thriving and they're doing their best to open us up. Good for all of us, yes. You've heard it uh, directly from one of our greatest cultural citizens, Emily Raffrey. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I, I also, Emily, I love the fact that Moynihan Station is now opened. You know, it's it trains, not planes, but it's Peter gorgeous. Moyer's clock out there and <laughs> yes. the work of Tom Wright and the regional planning people. And it is, it is. I had um, a view of it when it was being built, a tour of it. Yeah. And when you come to New York, come through Penn Station. And yes, here, here. Glory, glory of what New York can and yes. will revive. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I wanna thank Emily Raffrey for joining us today here on The Caring Economy. Emily, I'm gonna give you the last word. Any final thoughts on leadership, the roles of businesses in, in, in community or, or mentoring young people? The floor is yours. 
Well, as a leader, I would say to everybody, look around and see what needs to be done and find the right person to do it. It may not be you, but you can have a role in making sure that it does get done. Thank you so much, Emily Raffrey, for joining us today on The Caring Economy. Everyone have a great day.